Welcome back to Kentucky History and Haunts. I'm Jesse Bartholomew, and I feel like I haven't done any recording in forever, so I hope I'm not too rusty. Um, I've been researching this case. It's it's a big one. It's going to be at least two parts, probably three or four, and this one is really close to home for me. It's the first time I have, you know, teared up, started crying during the research. Um, it happened in my hometown not that long ago. Um, the family actually lived just a few streets over from my house where I'm recording right now. So you might hear me get a little emotional. Um, <laughs> also, it's there are some really gruesome details that I'm going to gloss over. And if you want to hear all the, the really difficult parts, I recommend the book Double Jeopardy by Bob Hill. It's where I got the bulk of my research. It's a great book. I just can't. I just can't get too far into some of these details. So um, it's still going to be a really great story. It's a very complicated, um, you know, you think you're at the end and really it's just the beginning. So boy, strap in. It's going to be a wild ride. Uh, this is the story of Brenda Sue Schaefer. Brenda Sue Schaefer came from a family of German Catholics who lived in St. Matthews, had always lived in St. Matthews, you know, since the 1840s. So Brenda's dad was John Sr., and he went to school until 8th grade. He worked as a butcher and a painter. He actually helped paint the interior of the Seelbach Hotel. And then he went on to work for the Bernheim Distillery most of his adult life. Brenda's mother, Mary Essie, was born in 1915, about 50 miles south of Louisville, and she moved to Louisville in the 30s. And she went by her first and middle name because all the girls in her family were named Mary, which I guess was kind of a common thing for very Catholic families. So you might hear me call her Mary Essie or just Essie throughout the story. John and Essie got married in 1937, and they had six kids. The first was a foster child named Marianne Parrott, and then they had a daughter, Carolyn, and a son, Jack Jr., in 1939 and 43. Tom was born in 1945, Mike in 1948, and Brenda, the baby of the family, was born on April 25, 1952. They started out in a small two-bedroom house on Stabler Avenue, and by 1957, they were like, we're going to need more room. So they moved to a larger house on Warner Avenue, still in St. Matthews. Brenda's older sister, Carolyn, referred to Brenda as mom's shadow because of how attached she was to her mother. Brenda went to school at Our Lady of Lourdes, and her mom actually got a job in the cafeteria there to be closer to her. So here's a description of Brenda's personality. Quote, Brenda was an average student with an interest in art. Even in grade school, her personality was constant. She could be spunky, but was often shy, indecisive, didn't like confrontation. If possible, she would walk away from an argument. She worried about other people's feelings at the expense of her own. Brenda sounded like a pretty typical teenager. Um, she and her friends snuck an occasional cigarette blowing the smoke out of her bedroom window. They went to movies with boys at the Vogue Theater. Brenda went to Wagner High School, 
She was the only of all her siblings to attend a public high school. She was really insecure about her physical appearance, though. She was considered popular and um, well-dressed, but she was very critical of her own hair and her makeup and especially of her weight. So for a while during her first years of high school, she didn't date. Um, She pretty much stayed away from guys and she also wanted to stay a virgin until marriage. But eventually she did meet her first real boyfriend, Pete Van Pelt. In 1967, her dad bought a little summer camp on the Ohio River. It was a few miles north of Harrods Creek, and Brenda and her friends were out sunbathing when Pete came by on a boat, and he was infatuated with her right off the bat. He was a Louisville police dispatcher with hopes of becoming an officer, but Pete became possessive possessive of Brenda pretty quickly. Maybe because he was from a very small town in Indiana, he thought it was a man's right to control money, decisions, the relationship in general. Her senior year, Pete proposed, and she said yes and showed off the ring to anyone who would look. And she really didn't make a whole lot of close friends her last year of high school. Pete took up all her free time. The few couples who double-dated with them said they argued a lot. But they went ahead and set the wedding for 1971, and even though her family really didn't think she was ready to be married, she really wanted to be Pete's wife. On May 2nd, 1971, Brenda's brother, Jack Jr., was murdered. He was a police officer, and he was killed in the line of duty, and the wedding was postponed till December of 1971. Now, on the exterior, things may have seemed good in their marriage at first, but behind closed doors, they had their share of problems, and the primary problem was sex. Brenda was happy to kiss and snuggle, but she really didn't like intercourse. They were married four years, but hardly ever had sex, and later Pete said that he had suggested seeing a marriage counselor, but she wouldn't go. Brenda never opened up to anyone about this, as far as we know. It could have had to do with her strict Catholic upbringing or some sort of physical problem, but we can only speculate. Maybe she just didn't like sex. But they also fought over money. Um, Brenda was training to be a nurse's aide, and she was working part-time. And Pete had the dispatch job, but he thought Brenda was becoming too material. Like... Perhaps she wanted more than he was able to provide at the time, and she let him know it. Around this time, they were living in Clarksville uh, to be closer to Pete's home, and Brenda wasn't really happy with that setup either. Beyond that, Pete was apparently pretty irresponsible with the money they did have, and he was also super jealous. The last year of their marriage was pretty ugly, and their divorce was official by March of 1976. Now fast forward to September 25th, 1988. Enter Jefferson County Police Detective Jim Wesley. Detective Wesley was 36 at the time. He'd already been an officer for 13 years. He was a member of the Violent Crimes Unit. And it had been a pretty quiet weekend 
until he saw a note left for him by the St. Matthews Police Department. They were asking for assistance on a missing persons case. At 6.08 that morning, Brenda Sue Schaefer's blue over white Buick Regal was found abandoned along the westbound lane of I-64 near Breckenridge Lane. It had a flat right rear tire. It had been ransacked. The stereo was missing. Papers were scattered about. And there was a substance that could have been blood found in the back seat and outside the vehicle. Shortly after seeing the note, he got a call from police detective Jim Ennis asking him for help. So the last time Brenda was seen, she had been wearing light jeans, a light-colored sweater, and fine jewelry, including a gold necklace and diamond rings. And Detective Ennis voiced his concerns to Detective Wesley. He said, quote, It's my gut feeling that this could be much more than a missing persons case. So... Wesley drove over to the St. Matthews Police Department and he learned that the car had already been towed and it was being examined for prints, hair, blood, you know, any evidence. Um, So in the meantime, Officer Tom Gilsdorf had gone to the Schaefer home to file the missing persons report with Mary Essie. He also got in touch with Mel Ignato, who was Brenda's fiance and the last person to see her the night before. Ignato was 50, quite a bit older than Brenda. He'd worked for a Louisville import-export company for over two decades, but had just lost his job about a year earlier and had come back to Louisville after a, quote, failed real estate venture. Um, Mel was a big guy. He was six foot five, 190 pounds, very well-groomed. So he said that they had been together that Saturday And Brenda was driving because his Corvette had a tire issue. Brenda had left his home in the East End around 11.30 that night to head back to her parents' house in St. Matthews. And Mel got a call from Brenda's mom at 3.30 that morning when Brenda still hadn't come home. And then uh, Brenda's mom, Mary Essie, had to kind of cover her tracks because she realized that Brenda might be with her ex-boyfriend, Jim Rush. See, Brenda had actually been growing tired of Mel, and she'd been wanting to end the relationship, but she hadn't told him yet as far as Brenda's mom knew. And so Mary Essie was like trying to cover by hanging up with him and then telling him a while later that she'd actually found Brenda and that she was just at her daughter-in-law Sandy's house. Mel called Sandy after hanging up with Essie and was obviously upset when he learned that Essie had lied to him and that Brenda was not at Sandy's house after all. He actually broke down crying, and at 4.11 that morning, Mel called 911. And he said, quote, I don't know if I've got a problem here or not. I've got a person who's missing or seems to be missing. Meanwhile, Essie had called Jim Rush, uh, Brenda's ex, who was a local dentist, And when he confirmed that she wasn't with him either, they both really started to panic. And Jim immediately went out searching local spots he thought she might be, including a drive-by of Mel's house. Brenda also had a condo, but it doesn't sound like she spent much time there. Um, Her mom was sick with lupus, so she spent most of her time there caring for her mom. Uh, But one of her brothers did drive by the condo, and then headed back to Warner Avenue to meet with police and help answer questions. 
One of Brenda's brothers, Tom, had a girlfriend named Linda Love, who he'd been dating for four years. And in that time, she and Brenda had become pretty good friends. They used to go on double dates with Jim Rush before Mel was in the picture. Now, one of the last times Brenda and Linda had been together, Brenda told her that she was pretty unhappy with her relationship with Mel. For one, he was extremely possessive. And she told Linda a story that while they were on vacation, Brenda woke up to Mel standing over her, holding a chloroform cloth to her face. So I don't know if a flag can get any redder than that. Brenda said in that moment that she was ready to leave him for good, but for whatever reason, she changed her mind and stayed with him. And when Linda heard this and told Brenda that she really did need to get away from this guy, she told Linda, quote, you just don't understand. Linda had also spoken with Brenda the Friday night right before she went missing and said that during that conversation, Brenda seemed really nervous and felt like Mel followed her home that night. And Brenda even told her that she was planning on giving back Mel's engagement ring the following night. So Sunday morning, the family sat together in the house on Warner Avenue. The brothers were there. Linda Love was there. And they all noticed that afternoon when Mel Ignato parked on the street in front of their house, he was driving his Corvette, the one he said wasn't drivable the day before. And they thought his behavior was weird. It fluctuated. One minute he was super sad and quiet, and then the next he'd act nervous and fidgety. And Mary Essie, Brenda's mom, really didn't want him there that day. She even knew about the chloroform incident, and she had talked to Brenda about it and was like, look, if you're scared of what he'll do if you break up with him, come bring him here and do it here in front of your dad and I. So she was definitely ready for Brenda to leave this guy. She did not want him over at their house that day when Brenda was missing. And so Mel, I guess, kind of got that feeling. So he went into the kitchen while everyone else was in another room. And Brenda's sister Carolyn was in there. And Mel kind of broke down in front of Carolyn. And she tried to comfort him by telling him, you know, Brenda's probably fine. She's just out somewhere. She'll turn up. To which he responded, quote, no, she's not. I think she's gone. I think she's dead. Later that evening, Tom Schaefer and his girlfriend Linda went to the St. Matthews police station by themselves so they could tell police about her conversation with Brenda about Mel and how she was afraid of him. Before they even heard from Linda, though, the St. Matthews police had already been doing their homework on Mel and they got in touch with the Oldham County Police since Mel had a 32-foot boat docked at Tartan's Landing Marina in Oldham County. They needed to make sure, of course, that Brenda wasn't on the boat, that there wasn't any evidence on the boat. An Oldham County detective made his way to Tartan's Landing and met with the harbormaster, Charles Dahl, and this was around 11.30 Sunday night. Dahl said, Mel had already called him uh, to find out if he had seen Brenda hanging out around there. And uh, Dahl said that Mel told him Brenda had been depressed, she wasn't getting along with her family, and that he was planning on selling his boat and moving to Florida. So 
lots of information to give the harbor master there while you're looking for your girlfriend. Now, if you're familiar with Louisville at all, you know we have like lots of smaller little towns within the city of Louisville, and lots of these have their own police departments. So jurisdiction and communication can get a little frazzled from time to time. Four separate agencies participated on the first day of the investigation. The car was found in St. Matthews. The Jefferson County Police were called in because they were best equipped to deal with the case. Mel's house was in Jefferson Town, which we call J-Town. And of course, the boat was in Oldham County, so they were kind of all over the place. So, Detective Wesley from St. Matthews and Detective Ennis from Jefferson County alerted Detective Robert Perkins before they went to J-Town to visit Mel at his house. But Perkins was already aware of the situation. He had been briefed on it, and he'd actually tried to see Mel himself. He'd gone over to Mel's two-story brick house on Florian Road in Plainview, but that was during the day, and Mel was probably still at the Schaefer's when he tried to go see him. But Mel lived there in that house with his mom, Virginia. And Virginia was home when Perkins got there. And Virginia confirmed that Brenda dropped Mel off around 11.30 the night before and left. Mel and Virginia had a nice house. Um, Mel lived on the second floor mostly. And he had this bathroom that he liked to brag he remodeled and spent over $25,000 on. And... I'm just going to read you straight from Double Jeopardy, the description of this bathroom. Quote, The pink and beige walls matched his toilet paper. His tub was pink granite with gold faucets. The bath had huge mirrors, an etched glass shower door, and controlled lighting. Ignato kept his bathroom so spotless that guests were intimidated by it, afraid to use it. So there's that. Um, When Perkins, Ennis, and Wesley arrived together at Mel's house, they decided that Ennis would go canvas the neighborhood while Wesley and Perkins would interview him. And Mel seemed a little too eager to be interviewed, which they found a little odd. And Wesley also noted that the house was incredibly clean inside, quote, uncomfortably neat, like almost staged. They started the interview and were put off again when Mel started calling them by their first names as if they were all old friends. Also, he had notes prepared for the conversation. He read from his notes and he told the chronology of events from the previous day. Mel told police they left Mel's house around 4 o'clock Saturday afternoon. They went to Gold Star Chili in Hikes Point. Then they drove to a boat show at Harrods Creek Landing, but it was a really rainy day, so he said they ended up sitting in the car for a few minutes and then leaving without ever actually going to the boat show. So then he said they drove up 42 to Prospect, where they thought about stopping at an art fair, but they didn't do that either. Again, citing the weather. So they drove even further up 42 into Oldham County to check out some new houses being built. 
And then they went all the way back into town to go to Oxmoor Mall around 6.30. And they walked around the mall until 9 p.m., didn't buy anything, then drove all the way back out to Prospect to go to dinner at Captain's Quarters. And if you're local like I am, this last part is probably what really made you scratch your head. Like, they were out all day towards Prospect in Oldham County, and then they drove all the way back towards Brenda's house, walked aimlessly around a mall for two and a half hours, and then drove all the way back out to the area where they were before. And he said it was really quiet at Captain's Quarters, so they only stayed for five to ten minutes and then went right back into town. That's just a bizarre day to me. It doesn't make a lot of sense. So after Brenda dropped him off that night, he said he got hungry, but there wasn't anything good in the house. So at midnight, he drove his Corvette. He said he didn't, wasn't able to drive earlier. Uh, he drove it to Skyline Chili. So he had chili twice that day, I guess. And he said he was there till about 1.30 in the morning, and he said he was talking with the waiter and watching football, and then he went back home for the night. And just like Virginia, his mom, told the police, Mel said Brenda had been acting depressed, working too hard, worried about her sick mother, and Mel kept interrupting the police questioning to ask if they'd found her car and what condition it was in. After speaking with several neighbors in the area, none of them could remember seeing Brenda or her car in the 11 o'clock hour that Saturday night. So enter Roy Hazelwood. Um, He's going to come back up later, but I'm going to go ahead and introduce him now. So Hazelwood worked for the Behavioral Science Unit of the FBI Academy at Quantico, Virginia, and his unit was part of the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime basically studying the psychology of violent criminals. Why do they do what they do? Hazelwood was 52 at the time, and he was like a very stoic and put-together guy. And he had become, quote, one of the world's experts on criminal sexual sadism. He had studied over 150 cases of death during autoeroticism. He wrote papers on serial rapists, His subjects often recorded, documented, took photos of their crimes, and kept souvenirs. Hazelwood observed three personality disorders that were prevalent in most criminal sexual sadists, and those are paranoia, narcissism, and psychopathic behavior. He also wanted to learn why the victims stayed and put up with the behavior of their abuser in so many cases. He found that the abuser would choose victims who were vulnerable with low self-esteem and that the criminal, the abuser rather, would give these victims lots of special attention and gifts, really make them feel special. And then they would also punish them with guilt, bursts of anger, or withholding of affection. And they would also isolate them socially, becoming extremely possessive and cutting off their relationships with friends and family. And this type of person also could not handle being left. They could easily leave their victim if they wanted to, but not the other way around. It would be too big a blow to their ego. 
and very few of this type ever murder their first victims, there would be like a gradual buildup over time to murder. So I'm telling you all this now, and I just want you to kind of keep it in your back pocket. Back to Brenda's case, though. Detective Jim Wesley became emotionally attached to Brenda's case almost immediately. He would grow very close with the Schaefer family, and he also was familiar with the story about Brenda's brother, Jack Jr., who was a fellow officer who died in the line of duty. So Monday morning, Wesley learned Brenda had not shown up for work at Dr. William Spaulding's office and that the FBI was going to be lending their assistance, which was good news. That afternoon, he and Detective Dave Wood, along with FBI agents Steve Shiner and Hal Davis, went to visit Dr. Spaulding at his office near Cave Hill Cemetery. Spaulding was 61. He had a well-established family practice, and he was very visibly nervous and just distraught when the officers arrived at his office that day. Brenda had been his employee for 12 years. She was smart and a hard worker. She almost never took days off. And boy, did Dr. Spaulding have an opinion. He told the police outright, quote, Melik Dotto is responsible for this. I know he is. I know the bastard did it. Two of the detectives went to interview Brenda's best friend, Joyce Smallwood. Joyce and Brenda both married young to jealous and possessive husbands, and both were left with low self-esteem from those experiences. Both got divorced and dated not-so-great guys afterwards, so they had a lot in common. And Joyce also was able to confirm to police that Brenda didn't really like to be touched. She said in the duration of their friendship, they'd only hugged maybe twice. Joyce introduced Brenda to Mel Ignato in 1986 after Brenda had just broken up with Jim Rush, who she dated for eight years, and Brenda had been really torn up about this breakup. She loved Jim Rush, but she felt like she was being taken for granted and that he drank too much. But he really loved her too. It was apparent to anyone who'd been around them and the Schaefer family liked him a lot. But after they broke up, Joyce felt like Brenda really just needed a rebound, and that rebound would come in the form of Mel Ignato. Mel and Brenda met almost two years to the day before Brenda would go missing. They went out on Mel's boat, and he invited her to come out again the very next day. And she liked that he paid so much attention to her, and his house and boat and Corvette certainly didn't hurt either. But Joyce came to regret the introduction. She felt like Mel wasn't a very honest guy. He would tell stories about working for the CIA and having $300,000 cash hidden in China. Things like that just seemed kind of off the wall to her. And Joyce actually warned Brenda that she needed to get away from him. Mel was really proud of Brenda and liked to show her off, especially to his co-workers, and he gave her lots of gifts, lots of jewelry, and was hinting at marriage just two months after they met. And he did propose on the third month, 
with a ring he told her cost 20 grand, but she told him it was too soon. But by Valentine's Day the next year, five months after they met, she did accept his proposal, but she wouldn't set a date. And by December of 1987, their relationship just wasn't fresh and exciting, and it really wasn't happy. Mel lost his job and had become more and more possessive and sexually demanding. He called Brenda multiple times a day at work and checked up on her at home when they weren't together, and he'd also taken charge of her finances. He blamed her for losing his job. He'd also given her pills that knocked her unconscious, and she would wake up naked not knowing what happened. When Brenda would threaten to leave him, he would cry and act helpless and pathetic, and she was kind of known for being bad with confrontation and not being very assertive, trying not to hurt people's feelings, but she really wanted to start seeing Jim again, like I mentioned before. She'd even gone out with him a couple times already. The week before she disappeared, Brenda told Jim Rush that she had really, truly broken up with Mel but that she had to meet with him that coming weekend to return some of his things. So after learning new details from Joyce, Dr. Spaulding, and Brenda's co-workers, the police decided they needed to go back to Mel's house that night. And this time he wasn't home when they got there. They were greeted by his sister, Natalie. And when they said, okay, we'll wait, Mel's mother got on the phone and called attorney Charlie Ricketts. Ricketts had also been Mel's attorney in 1984 when Ignato pled guilty to tax evasion. For this, he was sentenced three years, but only served 30 days. When Mel got home that night, he was angry. Um, He had been drinking, and his anger was directed at Detective Wesley. He was upset that they had told him previously that they hadn't found Brenda's car, which they had. He was all upset about that, and still on the phone, Virginia said that Charlie was advising Mel to ask the police to leave. So they did. They knew they weren't going to get anything else from Mel for the time being, so they decided to look into another lead, a woman named Marianne Shore who Brenda's friends told police they needed to talk to. 38-year-old Marianne Shore rented a small frame home on Poplar Level Road. Detective Wesley went to pay her a visit, accompanied by FBI agents Mari Berthon and Amy Newton on Tuesday afternoon. And they were surprised by Marianne's appearance. Because she was an ex of Mel's, they were expecting something different, something Someone more beautiful, really. So she's described in Double Jeopardy as, quote, a much larger woman with brown hair, blue eyes, and a plain face. Her glasses were rounded with a wide frame, a little bit owlish. And she was visibly nervous when they got there. She and Mel had met at his old job in 1973, where she was a receptionist. They started dating in 1974, and would continue to see each other romantically on and off for the next decade. He took her on some trips, he gave her nice things, she babysat his three kids from a previous marriage while he was away on business. But in private, when she wasn't around, 
Mel told co-workers that he didn't love her, didn't care about her, and that he was just using her for sex. When questioned, Marianne told police that Mel wasn't violent or possessive towards her, and she broke up with him because she wanted to get married, and she knew it wasn't going to happen with Mel. She said their sex life had been pretty average, and that she hadn't talked to him much since he started seeing Brenda, and that she hadn't heard from him at all since April of that year. Next, they would talk with Mel's ex-wife, Sharon Kippen Ignato, and she provided a 12-page statement the FBI could use to create a profile for Mel. They were married in 1960, they separated in 1973, and it was unusual that Mel got custody of the kids, but here's an excerpt from the profile they built. Quote, Subject is described as being an individual who exhibited very little, if any, affection toward immediate family members to include wife and children. He seldom, if ever, hugged or kissed the wife and children. The subject was in absolute control of the household and made all money and business decisions. The subject made no effort to inform or discuss with the spouse any business arrangement or endeavors, nor did any discussions take place as to the general overall operation of the home. Source advises the subject would spare no expense in maintaining his wardrobe and accessories, but would require his wife and children to purchase their limited clothing and school clothes at such locations as Kmart. So, He was very controlling, and he liked to spend a lot of money on himself, but didn't really want any money spent on his family. Sharon also told police that he had hit her a few times, and that when she first mentioned divorce, he threatened to commit suicide. Also, he gave her a two-carat diamond ring, and he often used that against her when they would get into arguments. But later on, she dropped it, and it cracked. And when she took it to be repaired, the jeweler told her it was fake. So, Mel's just not looking really great right now. Police got their next interview with him on Thursday after Brenda went missing, and this time his attorney, Charlie Ricketts, was present. And Detective Wesley and FBI agents Berthon and Shiner were really caught off guard at Mel's complete emotional breakdown at the start of their interview. And once he kind of collected himself, he did tell the story over again, and he made one change to his story during that interview. So the part of their drive Saturday where he said they went out to look at new homes being built in Oldham County. He said, actually, that happened the previous weekend. We didn't do that this Saturday. He also mentioned that Jim Rush, uh, one of Brenda's exes, struggled with substance abuse. And Pete Van Pelt, her first husband, was still in love with Brenda. And so he was just obviously trying to direct their attention to other suspects. The Saturday night after Brenda went missing, 
at 11.30 p.m., Tom Schaefer parked on Breckenridge Lane and walked out on the I-64 overpass, and he was trying to get an idea of how much traffic was out at that time and how busy it was, and he realized it was still pretty trafficy at that time on a Saturday night, and the headlights made it a really bright area, and he just thought, It would be impossible for an abduction to take place there at that time without anyone seeing. Two days later, on October 3rd, Tom was asked to wear a wire while talking to Mel. So they met at Kingfish on River Road, a police van parked outside, and they talked a while pretty casually. And then Tom mentioned that he had gone out walking on the overpass Saturday night where Brenda's car was found, and Mel kind of like momentarily freaked out. Um, He thought that Tom meant he was there the night Brenda disappeared and he had to like quickly collect himself and move on. But it was just this strange moment where he was very flustered. And then even more strange, Mel pulled out a piece of paper that was a list he'd written of all Brenda's assets. It was a 42 item list, so weird. He knew about her life insurance, savings, IRA, everything, jewelry appraisals, everything. So Mel was sitting there telling Brenda's brother where Brenda wanted all her money to go. Mind you, they are not married. They haven't even known each other all that long. But it was also like he was assuming right then that she wasn't coming back and that he was in charge of her finances. So Tom had to sit there and try not to act completely livid over this but they met two more times after that at kingfish and tom wore a wire each time um the last time he just had to like keep mel entertained inside while the police bugged his car in the parking lot he was also followed everywhere by police and helicopters for weeks he later admitted that he knew his car had been bugged and that he was being followed he was also asked to take a polygraph but he refused under the guidance of Charlie Ricketts. Um, In the meantime, the police got a letter about the tire analysis on Brenda's car, so I'm going to read you a little quote about that. Quote, There was no conclusive evidence the nail had touched the road surface or had been struck by a hammer. The company concluded the nail had probably been picked up in the roadway or placed in the tire several hundred to several thousand miles before the vehicle was stopped, doing its damage over a long period of time. It said the tear inside the tire was longer than the external hole, indicating the nail had worked back and forth inside the tire. The expert said the tire definitely went flat after the car was parked, probably in about 35 minutes. So members of the Kentucky Rescue Association spent eight hours looking for Brenda in the Ohio River. Nothing was found. Um, One of them said a psychic had told them that uh, Brenda had been murdered and put in a 55-gallon drum in some wet place. But yeah, nothing, nothing came of this, unfortunately. Now, police learned about a woman named Lauren Lechleiter, who was both a longtime acquaintance of Marianne Shore and Mel's barber. So she knew both Marianne and Mel. Marianne had told Lauren that Mel had stopped by her house on Poplar Level Road several times for sex while he was dating Brenda. 
She also told Lauren that Mel had, quote, bullied her into multiple abortions because he didn't want to be trapped by her. After they broke up for good, Marianne told Lauren that she would still sometimes go by his house knowing Brenda would be there. She would follow him to clubs, waiting in parking lots. So just some real unhealthy stuff. And in case right now you're thinking, oh wow, poor Mel being stalked. No, Mel was dating again six weeks after Brenda went missing. He was seeing a woman named Joyce Harper who he'd known for eight years. So, five months into the case, Detective Wesley was so frustrated. Um, A lot of time had gone by. It was getting cold. But he knew in his heart that Mel was responsible for this. I mean, he believed it 100%. He asked Marianne Shore to come down to the station yet again. They had met multiple times by now. She'd been questioned a lot. And... This last time, he screamed at her that he knew Mel did it and knew she had information that she was not sharing with them. And spoiler alert, she did. And that is where I'm going to leave you for now. This story is far from being wrapped up. There are lots of twists and turns here, so... There will be two more episodes after this. If you're enjoying the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and tap five stars and share on social media. And on behalf of this series, I'm asking listeners to head over to the Center for Women and Families website, which is thecenteronline.org, and click donate on the top right-hand side of the screen. Until next time.